You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Well, amen. It is so good to be here with you today. If you will, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 7 today. Again, that is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. And I I just want to begin today uh, by taking a a moment to thank Brandon Cook and Brandon Pierce uh, for filling in for me while I was in Louisville. Uh, And I wanted to thank all of you for your prayers for me and for taking care of my girls while I was gone. Uh, we are blessed here uh, at Bellevue with a tremendous staff. We have awesome pastor elders here at Bellevue, and I am thankful for both of them and their faithfulness in preaching the word. Uh, Brandon Cook preached on the steadfast love of the Lord enduring forever, and we truly can be thankful that the Lord's love to us has endured and will endure for all of eternity. And one of the ways that this eternal love of the Father is seen in the fact is in the fact that he meets our need for salvation. We see his eternal, steadfast love and the fact that he has planned from eternity to save us by his grace. That was what Brandon Pierce talked about last week. He talked about the need that we have for salvation, that God met our need, the need we have for Christ. Charles Spurgeon famously said, I have a great need for Christ and I have a great Christ for my need. At Advent, which simply means the arrival of an important person. A lot of times uh, I've had people talk to say, you know, what is Advent? Advent means the arrival of an important person. Uh, And in this case, at this time of year when we celebrate Advent, what we're celebrating is the fact that Jesus came to earth. We celebrate the fact that God so loved us that he sent his son Jesus to be born of a virgin, live a sinless life, and bear the wrath of God on the cross. Die and be resurrected on the third day that we might be saved by his grace. We celebrate that Christ came because if he had not, we would be hopelessly and helplessly dead in our sins. We have a tremendous need for Christ. But praise God, he sent us Jesus. And the message of this season is one of hope and joy and peace because we can rejoice that we have a great Savior. And so last week we looked at the need for Jesus. And this week we're going to look at the name of Jesus. Shakespeare famously asked in Romeo and Juliet, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Now, in Shakespeare's play, when he's talking about this, Juliet, uh, remember, cannot marry Romeo. It's a forbidden love because of his last name, because the families are in a feud. Shakespeare was getting at the point of saying that the name in that situation doesn't matter. The substance of what the name refers to does, right? Romeo was a good man regardless of his name. A rose smells wonderful not because it's called a rose, but because it is one. But what we need to remember today is when it comes to the Bible, and, and specifically when it comes to the name of Jesus, we recognize that there is certainly much we can learn about who Jesus is um, from his name because God gave him his name. God does everything intentionally. We recognize that when we come to the Bible, everything is there on purpose. Everything is there intentionally. There's not one single accident. There's not something that's just kind of thrown in there or thrown together. It's intentional. There's no careless word. And so the way that God chooses to reveal himself and his character, in this case, we see a lot about that 
from the name that he chooses to refer to his son. God ordained this, and again, it reveals much about who he is. And so as we examine Isaiah 9, 2 through 7 today, and we see what this famous passage about the Messiah's name says, may it teach us as we celebrate him during this Christmas season. So let's look at Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. Verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we thank you so much for sending your Son to pay the price for our sins. Lord, we thank you so much and for your tremendous love toward us. Lord, we thank you that you are revealing yourself to us through your word. Lord, you have completely shown us what you want us to see and know. And Father, we pray that today as we look into this word, that we would know more of your character so that we can worship you more fully. Lord, we pray during this time that, that you would draw us to yourself. Lord, for those who are believers, that, Lord, you would call us more closely into life with you. Lord, you would show us how we can walk more closely with you, how we can be more pleasing to you in the life that we live. And Father, if there are lost here today, we pray that they would be convicted by the preaching of your word. Lord, we pray that they would place their faith in you, knowing that you alone can save us from our sins. Father, we pray that every word that is spoken here today, everything we do and everything we say would be for your honor and your glory alone. Father, we pray that this would be your message rather than my own. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, last week we saw that there is a tremendous need, right? We as people need a Savior. We are dead. We are blind. We are in darkness. And oddly enough, that is where this messianic prophecy of Isaiah picks up. It starts here in verse 2 with the people who walk in darkness. Before we are changed by God's grace, we remember that we walk in the darkness. We are enemies of God and we are dead in our sin. Sin leaves man in the dark. Our minds are blinded. We cannot see the truth. But because of Christ, everything changes. Today I want to show you several insights that I've seen in this passage. First, I want to show you the effects of Christ's coming. Then we'll look at the implications of his name and how that name encourages us to live as believers. But first of all, let's see the effects of his coming. Um, traditionally, this Sunday in the, in the Advent calendar is one where we celebrate the joy 
that we have in Christ. Well, the effects of his coming are truly joyous. We see this in verses 2 through 5, right? The, the people who walk in darkness. This is essentially saying we are in darkness, but the light is coming. The people who walked in darkness have what? It says they have seen a great light. Those who are living in a land of darkness, on them a light has shone. Well, that light is Christ. Clearly here, Isaiah is pointing ahead to the Messiah, is pointing ahead to Jesus. And we remember that this is something that we have seen in our study of the Gospel of John. Back in John 1, verse 5, Jesus is referred to as the light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, the Bible tells us. This is Jesus. When Jesus began his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew records his coming in his ministry as the fulfillment of these verses. If you were to, again, read this verse here, and then we go over to Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, we see that it basically quotes this and says this is the fulfillment. Verses 13 through 17 of Matthew 4 say this. It says, In leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The point here is that in the Gospel of Matthew, this verse, these verses here, this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. There is a clear connection. Sin leaves man in the dark, and and without Christ, we could not see our own hand in front of our face, spiritually speaking. But with Christ, the light has dawned. There's light. But not just any light. The, The text describes it here as a great light. A light that pierces the darkness. Not simply weakly shining, but shining such that the darkness cannot over come it you know uh having a a young child we hear a lot of those old sunday school songs uh this little light of mine is the one that uh so often play is playing in our house and when we think about the the little light that we have within us shining we're to remember that in this we are to shine the light of jesus out to those around us but sometimes when we think of the light of jesus or the light of the gospel or how Jesus is shining out into the darkness, we so often think of it as this weak little timid candle. We're surrounded by such great darkness, and, and, and we're just holding this little light, trying to keep the flame flickering. But that is not how the text describes it. He is a great light that pierces the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. We're not trying to keep the light flickering, rather the light is shining, it is blaring, it is blazing into the darkness. So because Christ has come, this light is shining, and and there's more. The text tells us here in verse 3 that that there is joy. Joy is here because Jesus came. In in verse 3, the joy is increased, the Bible says. Three times there, or really four if you use the word glad, but we see this as that joy has been increased. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad. There's a lot of happiness going on in there. 
question is why? Well, it's the first line of verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. The nation is multiplied. You see, back in the, under the Jewish system, under the law, the Jews thought that salvation was restricted to the Jews. The Jews thought they were the only ones who were going to be saved. They were the only ones. No one else would be saved by God, only them. But they were wrong. Christ, by his gospel, has multiplied God's people. All who repent of their sins and believe in him are saved and are brought into the family of God. The nation is multiplied because Christ came and paid the price for his people on the cross and they are now a part of his family and they rejoice. We as believers better rejoice at the fact that we have salvation in Christ and that God has people from every nation, tribe, and tongue that will worship him. So often we sit in sanctified silence when we ought to be rejoicing. Now we can do that reverently, but we're to rejoice, to have gladness, to be happy. We ought to have joy. Psalm 67 verse 4 says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. And as God's people, we should rejoice that his kingdom advances by his grace. And that more and more people are hearing the gospel and believing. And one of my favorite parts about going to these the school seminars that I've been at is that I get to hang out with a lot of missionaries. And uh, they, they come in from all corners of the world and, and I hear about what God is doing in these places and I hear about how people are coming to faith. And man, it, it, it just brings this joy. The, the gospel is advancing. If we don't see that, it's because we're not looking in the right place. But God's gospel is advancing. More and more people are hearing the gospel and believing, and we should rejoice at the harvest. So often our rejoicing is is for the wrong reasons as churches. So many times our our rejoicing, and and even at this time of year, uh, rejoicing a lot of times at, at this season happens based on what we get, right? The gifts, the stuff, whatever. As churches, a lot of times in today's world, what will so often happen is that we will begin to rejoice over things that are not the, the main point. And we get so lost looking for those things that we forget what we're supposed to be rejoicing about. One of the classic ways that I often see this is when I talk to pastors and, and the only thing they want to talk about are numbers and money. Right? How many people are coming? How much money is there? All those things. Those are important things. But it's a sad day when our rejoicing at the harvest is simply because we're going to add one to the role and not because one has been changed and saved by God's grace and brought into the kingdom of God. Rejoice at the harvest, but not again because of the numbers, not because of the value, not because it's evidence that good things are happening, but because it is a pointing and a reflection to God's grace and what he has done in a life that has been changed. The angels rejoice, but let's not let them be alone in that rejoicing. Finally, 
we see another reason for joy, and that is because, because of Christ's coming, the battle is over. The rod of oppression is broken here. We know that when we're saved, we are freed from sin. It's not that, again, we are totally perfect, but we are now freed from the bondage of sin. And I love the way that this is described here in verse 5 specifically. It's talking about the boots of soldiers and the garments rolled in blood, and we're tempted to look at that and go, what in the world is happening here? The last sandal, the last boot of the soldier, and the last bloody rag, it's all burned up as fuel for the fire, is the point. Now again, these, these boots of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, what that means is that these were the, the shoes that warriors wore. And what, what is being said here is that every last boot, every last bloody rag from the battle, it's all cast into the fire and it is burnt up. The rods of oppression are broken. The yoke of the burden is broken. The staff of the shoulder is broken. The battle is over. It's all burned up. The battle is won by Christ our King. And the sad thing is that we tend to take these things for granted as believers because we live on the other side of Christ's coming and his saving work. You see, as long as we have been believers, if you're a believer here today, all of these things have been true. Every second we've been a believer, we've had the light of Christ. Every second we've been a believer, God has been working to draw men and women, boys and girls from every nation and people. Every second we've been a believer, we can rejoice in the battle being won. But for Isaiah and for those people in that day, they were looking forward to this time. They were looking forward to it. They lived in a time in which Christ had not yet come. And I guarantee you that if if we could bring them to today, they would rejoice. The reason we can celebrate these things, the reason we can celebrate the light piercing the darkness, we can celebrate the nations multiplied, the reason we can celebrate the battle being won is because Christ came, because God was faithful to send his son to accomplish those things. What changed? How did it go from darkness to light? How do we go from a single nation to people from every nation? How was the battle won? Well, it was all of God's grace and it was all because of Jesus. And we see this in verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Who is this son? I want you to see here this morning now, secondly, the implications of his name. This is, this is what the coming one means. These are the effects of his coming. Let's look at the implications of his name. We know who that child is. Right? I, I remember being little and thinking when we would sing the song, what child is this? Being like, it's Jesus. <laughs> Why do we have to keep asking the question? And today we, we read this text and we go, well, duh, it's Jesus. He is that child. He is that son. Begin this here in verse 6 and verse 7. He's the, his name should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. We know that this is Jesus very clearly. But if there's any doubt in your mind, listen to Luke 1, 31 through 33. In this moment, the angel is speaking to Mary. He says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. It's the exact same thing. And so we can see very clearly that, that the angel was referring to Jesus and he's using the, languages of, the language of Isaiah's prophecy here in Isaiah 9 to tell Mary who this child would be. What's in a name? Well, we know in this case the name tells us much about who Jesus is. We come to Isaiah 9, what often happens is we think that these verses are just telling us alternative names of Jesus, right? He's a wonderful counselor. That, so, so we could call him wonderful counselor. We can call him almighty God. We can call him everlasting father. We can call him prince of peace. And while to a degree that's true, there's much more going on here. One commentator said it this way, in Jewish thought, a name doesn't just identify or d distinguish someone. It expresses the nature of his being. What that means is that the name tells us something about who they are. The Jews took names very seriously. In fact, they would not so much as speak the name of God for fear of messing it up. In fact, whenever they referred to God, instead of saying Jehovah or Yahweh, they would simply say Hashem, which means the name. Which just means, the, again, it just means the name because they had such a respect and a reverence for God's name. We are blessed that because of the, the grace of Jesus, we, we don't have to refer to God in some arbitrary, kind of weird third way. We can talk to God and, and know him. We can boldly go before the throne of grace. And so I'm not advocating that we don't say God's name, but what I'm telling you is that the Jews had respect for names and they had a very specific way of looking at them. Names are important. They tell us something. And so what happens here is that these names of Jesus that are being expressed here, the names of the Messiah, they're not just literal names, but rather they are aspects of Jesus' character. We see this in the Wonderful Counselor. Christ is truly the Wonderful Counselor. According to the Hebrew definition, a counselor is one who gives advice and makes plans. Right? So, very simply, give advice, make plans. That's what a counselor does. And this fits with the other names we see here, right? Almighty God means that he is sovereign. He has all power and authority. Everlasting Father means not that Christ is the Father, right? We're not denying the Trinity here, but that he is the creator, right? That word there, it means that he's the creator. He is the, the one who created all things. And finally, he's the Prince of Peace because he brings us peace with the Father. Now, what I've done in showing you that is I did bury the lead a little bit on what we're going to talk about when we look at these other names here in a moment. But... What I'm doing is I want you to see this for a purpose. When we think of wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace, we tend to isolate each one and see it individually. And we're doing that to a degree today. But what I'm trying to do here is to show you that when we read this, really these are not individual isolated names, but they are painting a full and complete story. Jesus is the planner. Before creation, we hear that the triune God, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit plan to save people. The world, all that there is, was created through Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus. This was done according to his almighty power. And the substance of that plan was to save people for his glory by making peace between a holy God and fallen sinners. It's a full, complete picture. There's nothing more wonderful than that plan. Absolutely nothing. When we look at Wonderful Counselor, again, we, we realize that, that Christ not only gives us excellent and perfect advice, but he's made plans. And as the planner, we recognize, again, there is nothing more amazing and perfect than that because he knows. And we must sing along with the hymn writer, I stand amazed in the presence. And I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful in my song shall ever be. How marvelous and how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. So he is wonderful, right? Both in planning and in his teaching us what to do. It's wonderful that he has planned to save us because if he had not planned to save us, there would be no saving. He's also mighty, or almighty here, right? We see this in the fact that he is called mighty God. You know, I can plan just about anything. I have a good imagination like that. In fact, sometimes I'll sit around and I'll just plan out exactly how things are going to go. But you know what? It doesn't always happen, does it? Right? Like, I, can, uh, I was thinking about this this week. Uh, I can plan to go on a really cool vacation and I can make all these great arrangements and ideas in my mind, but if I can't afford to go, guess what? I am not going. <laughs> Another thing in a way that we kind of see this play out is when we have to have a conversation with somebody. Right? This happens to me. I'll be thinking about it like maybe I'm in the shower or, or I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting there at, at my desk thinking about a conversation I'm going to have to have with somebody and I plan it out. I'm going to say this and then they're going to say this. And then I'm going to say this and then they're going to say this. And guess what? It never happens. Why? Because we can plan all we want to, right? Naturally, all of us make plans. I'm not saying to procrastinate or not to plan ahead. But what I'm saying is that we often make plans And we have no ability to secure that that plan will happen. In fact, James says we often make plans with no assurance of what tomorrow will bring. James 4, verses 13 and 15. says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James' point is that we should recognize it's all up to God. But this illustrates something amazing. The cool thing about God's plans is that they can't be thwarted. Psalm 115.3 states very clearly, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He's almighty God. This means that he can do whatever he so desires and his will will be perfectly fulfilled. Nothing can stop or stand against God. This is again why we don't fear the end of this world. We know that God works everything out for our ultimate good and for his glory. And everything there means everything. So we trust in his power. His plans will be accomplished. We see that he is also the everlasting father. 
The word here again, meaning that he is the eternal creator. He created everything. And man, what an amazing earth he has created. The beauty around us, all the things we see. Isn't it amazing to look at this world? I mean, we are, we are blessed. I was uh, speaking with a friend who was from Asia. And um, he was telling me that I, I've forgotten the word now. But in, in their country, the way they refer to uh, our country is they say the beautiful place. Uh, they don't call it America or the United States. They call it the beautiful place. He said, We're just, you're just so blessed with all this natural beauty you have around you everywhere you look. What's so cool is that we do live in a beautiful place. And the world is a beautiful place. More importantly, God created us in his image. And that is beautiful. He made us to know him and to glorify him. Our chief purpose in this life is to reflect and glorify our creator. In fact, he is praised for his creation in Revelation 4 verse 11. It says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God, in Revelation, in, in this new earth situation, we will be praising God for his creation. Psalm 139 verse 14 tells us that we are to praise him for his creation as well. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Man, we can praise God for the fact that he created us in his image, that we can glorify him. Finally, we see he is the prince of peace. This means that Jesus is the ruler of peace. He is the the prince of peace. The Bible is clear. When we think of peace, again, a lot of times we think of the absence of trouble. But when we look at the scriptures, the gospel will not bring us peace with the world. In fact, if we preach Jesus, we are guaranteed persecution and hatred from the world. But the Bible is clear. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing, it's the only thing that brings us peace with God. And that peace is peace that endures. It is peace like a river that flows and floods and does not care about your circumstances or how stressful the holidays are or even if we're being attacked for the sake of the gospel. The peace we have with God is permanent peace. It changes everything. We recognize that Christ did that. We were enemies of God. And and when we say that, a lot of times we... We think about it and we realize that naturally, oh yeah, obviously we were, we were opposed to God. Like naturally our sin separated us from God. But the, the real implication of being God's enemies is to say that we were at war. But because Christ paid the price for our sins, we can be at peace with God and can be his children. This peace means that we're his for all of eternity. Death can't even stop us. So we profess Christ and we live according to his word no matter what comes against us and we have peace no matter what. This is who Christ is according to this passage. It's who he is. He is wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. And that is one guy. This is Jesus. What does this mean for us? As we close here today, our our final point is just some encouragement to live in light of Christ's name. 
Here, I just want us to see what this means for us. How can we apply these truths about who Jesus is by his names given here in Isaiah 9 to our life? Again, wonderful counselor. He is the one who makes plans and gives advice. Who we listen to matters. You realize the fall came as a result of Adam and Eve listening to bad, evil counsel from the snake? How do we apply Jesus as the wonderful counselor to our life while we take his counsel? Again, it's not only making plans, but it's also giving advice. And we know in the case of our Lord God, it is perfect advice that should always be heeded. Remember when I first started trying to memorize scripture? The first two verses that I was told to memorize was Psalm 1, 1 through 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Another one I learned was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. What are, what are the point of those two verses? Who we listen to matters. We're not to listen to the people of the world, those who walk in the counsel of the wicked, those who stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. We're not even to lean on our own understanding. We are to acknowledge him in everything. We are to love his law and his word and meditate on it. Listen to the word of the Lord. Again, we are tempted to listen to everything else. It is loud this time of year. It's loud all the time. We have voices everywhere trying to tell us what to do and how to do it. But instead, listen to Christ. Take his word daily and live your life by it. See that he's the almighty God. Again, this one's going to sound so simple, but it's so important, and that is stop trying to do things in your own strength. Stop. Trust him perfectly. You can't mess up God's plan. So trust in it. When we're worried about tomorrow, we remember that he is the almighty God and his plan is perfect even if we can't see it. You know, sometimes church signs will put up the, just honestly, the dumbest stuff. And um, there's one, though, there's an old church sign adage that is true. And that's just simply this. When we don't know what tomorrow holds, we rejoice that we know who holds tomorrow. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen to us 10 minutes from now. I've been preaching before and part of the roof has fallen in the middle of a sermon. We don't know what will happen. But we know who has us. And we know that his plan is perfect and good. He is completely powerful to make, make it happen. So stop trying to do things in your strength. Stop trying to plan it all out on your own. Stop trying to, 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 to just will yourself to whatever you want. Trust in him. That doesn't mean we don't work hard. It doesn't mean we, we don't do the things that he's called us to do and we just sit here and, and just wait on things to happen. But it means that we do everything we do in the knowledge that it's all up to him. His will be done. That's why we say, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Because it is up to his will. So trust him. Everlasting Father, as our creator, we need to remember that you matter. 
You matter. If you think this holiday season that no one cares about you and you don't matter, know that that is a lie from hell. Our amazing, perfect God created you in his image. It means you have worth. And you have a task to glorify him. Now, and hear me carefully. I'm not saying that you're, you're special because you're so great. Right? I'm, I'm not saying that. You're special because God made you to glorify him. So do it. This season, remember, God, again, he made you in his image, and you have a task, and that task is to glorify him. So do it. Instead of glorifying ourselves, our families, even the other good things that come along with this season, we need to remember that we are to glorify him, and we're to find our value in him, not the things of this world. I had a pastor friend who said, God don't make no junk. And that's a biblical concept. But the purpose of what he has made is to glorify him. Even the rocks cry out. If a rock can do it, so can you. So may we glorify him. Prince of Peace. Right? I remember when I was in college at the Baptist College of Florida, I was honored to preach in chapel, and I was the most nervous person in the world. Literally, I remember I was preaching in this situation. Again, preaching in front of your professors is a scary thing. And I picked my hand up and it was doing this number, so I just put it back down. But ironically, that day, the message was on finding our peace in the person of Christ. And that message could not be any more true today in terms of that truth. We need to find peace in Christ. You see, we think we'll have peace by getting everything perfect this time of year. We've got to have the perfect present for somebody. Man, I just got to find that right gift that's going to make them smile. We think we've got to have the perfect meal. Right? All right, everybody, we've got to gather around. We've got to get it all perfect. It's going to be good. We're all going to sit down at the table, and we're all going to have matching dishes, and we're all going to have, everything's going to be good. We've got to have a perfect picture. Don't look stupid. Don't look goofy. We've got to get it right. Everything has to be perfect. But you know what? Even if you got all those things perfect, those things do not bring peace. They don't. They don't bring peace. In fact, a lot of times what happens is we realize that these things bring us strife and stress as we try to find peace in things that don't and can't offer it. And we wonder, why don't I have peace? It's because we're looking for it in all the wrong places. The only way we will ever truly have peace is if we have peace with God. Because this enables us to have peace even in the midst of hell on earth. Man, what, what beautiful truths. I was, again, reading. Usually the last thing I do when I'm writing sermons is read commentaries. Because usually uh, other people you know, are, are better preachers and commentators. So if I read something that they've done really good, I'm tempted to just mean, well, well man, I'm just going to tell you what he said. But I found this one summary of the application to this that I thought was just a good reminder for us. And so I share this with you today uh, from John Calvin. He said, when we need counsel, let us remember he's the counselor. When we need strength, let us remember that he is mighty and strong. When new terrors spring up suddenly every instant, and when many deaths threaten us from various quarters, let us rely on the eternity of which he is with good reason called the Father. And by the same comfort, let us learn to soothe all temporal distresses. 
When we're inwardly tossed by tempest, and when Satan attempts to disturb our conscience, let us remember that Christ is the Prince of Peace. And he said if we would go on to remember these things, that it would fortify us against the devil and hell itself. You know what's so amazing, though, here? I love the end here in verse 7. We tend to stop at these names, and I promise y'all we're, we're wrapping this up here. Verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there is no end. He rules for eternity. We read the end of the book, and we see that this is true. We can trust that he will accomplish this by his power. But I love the, the last line there, verse 7, The zeal of the Lord will perform this. Another word for zeal is passion. The passion of the Lord will perform this. Based on, on again, his glory and his love for us, he will do these things. He will perform it. There is no stopping it. This reminds us of this truth. This prophecy was written hundreds of years before Christ came. And guess what? The zeal of the Lord did perform it, it did happen. Christ fulfilled more prophecies than is statistically possible, yet he has done it. He came. According to God's plan and will, Christ came the first time, and just as surely as he came then, he will come again. We can have joy in that. We often think of Christ's coming as a big scary time. But it's not. It's a time of joy. Because we know that when Christ returns, that every knee will bow. Philippians 2, 9-11 says this, It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When he returns, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, but when he returns, he is coming in judgment. Those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ will be saved. It is a, a, a truth, it's a promise that we can take to, take to the bank. But those who did not will experience just punishment for all of eternity. Friends, he came and bore the punishment. We will all bow, we will all confess. We need to remember there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among which men must be saved. This is Acts 4. We need to remember today, we need to cry out to Christ. For believers, we're saved, but if you are lost, friend, know that he is coming back in judgment and nothing will escape. But he is good and he is gracious. So throw yourself on his mercy. Repent of your sin. Cry out to him and be saved. But if you have done that, live with the recognition of just how amazing he is. Follow his counsel. Trust his plan. Find peace in him. Let's go to our Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. Father, we thank you for the blessings of knowing you. But Lord, we pray now in this time that you would work in us, that your will would be done. That, Father, we would 
trust in you completely during this time. Lord, we pray that lost people would turn to you. Lord, we pray that believers would walk more faithfully. Lord, we pray that all of this would be done according to your grace and your will. It's in Christ's name we pray.